what the first time I met you, I like was nervous, but only because like I wanted you to think that I was like a good person and like had my stuff together. I want to ask you, is this the first time that you've heard this like face to face? I have resting serious face. <laughs> I had good intentions and I always wanted to do the right thing, but I, you know, the drugs and alcohol took precedence on the streets. I had payday friends, right? It was, they were my best friend when I got paid. From the start, I had abandonment in my life. Recovery for me has just been layers on top of layers. Like it's not just so black and white. I get to meet so many newcomers, so many people that are in their first few months of recovery. I celebrate that for, for many reasons. Number one is there's fire, there's hope. Never give up hope. There's always hope. And there's somebody out there that wants to help. Today I have a very, very special guest. I have my friend, honestly one of my low-key um, inspirations, Jackson Long. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. That was a great intro. Thank you, man. Bringing the energy right from the beginning. Bringing the energy right from the beginning. So I was, I, I told him right now that I was a little nervous because I am a little nervous just because from the moment I met you, I've always, uh, I was always very intimidated, right? And I feel like I guess basically before I met you, you uh, people spoke of you very, very highly of you, right? And it it's it seemed like a common thread. So what I want to ask you is: this the first time that you've heard this, like face to face, that people like have? No, no. Actually, I hear it quite a bit, and I mean, I'm not frustrated by it. I'm actually, I don't know. I guess I'm honored that people think highly of me because for a long time. You know, I thought very low of myself. So to know that people look up to me, I'm very honored by that. But it is a little discouraging to know that maybe people are hesitant to get to know me on a personal level because maybe they're a little intimidated by me. So I wish people would maybe look past maybe what others say of me or have said of me or, you know, my experience with my job or my recovery that sometimes precedes me and sometimes my status precedes I, I'm just another guy in recovery you know and I like to have fun and you know I, I work real hard at my job but I also work real hard at my recovery and that's life you know for me recovery taught me a new way to live so living a new life is how I celebrate my recovery you know it's part of that living amends like doing the next right thing and I like to have people around me that enjoy that too. So people have come up to me and they talk about, oh, when I first met you, it was intimidating and I thought you were so intimidating. And I try not to put off that persona, but I guess sometimes I do. My personality type, I'm a little bit more reserved, a little quieter, like I'm yeah. a thinker. So I'm not like this kind of overly exaggerated, like extrovert. I'm more of an analytical type, easygoing, laid back. And so I think sometimes people see that as like I'm serious all the time. I'm not serious all the time. I can be serious. And sometimes maybe I have, uh, what is the RBS, right? I have resting serious face. So, <laughs> I can see that, yeah. So RSF, resting right. serious face, I don't know. But, I mean, that makes sense. For me personally, like it wasn't out of fear. I think it was more so like just the way people moved around you. Like every the few times that I met you, uh people just like were like just glued to you right and like it was uh their body language and even like the way they acted basically in front of you sh just showed respect and like what the first time i met you i like was nervous but only because like i wanted you to think that i was like a good person and like had my stuff together um but then over time i was able to see like that you're really down to earth and you're very approachable. And most of the times that I have been able to like see you has been um, at, at, at your work events, right? And you, I, I noticed that you take the time to literally talk to everybody that comes across you. And I think that's super cool, especially being uh, the leader that you are. So have you always felt you were a leader or, or how did that come about with you? Um, 
I've always excelled in employment since I was a teenager. I've always seen promotions. And I guess I just had a good work ethic. I didn't I don't know if I necessarily saw myself as a leader because for a long time I was doing things that really went against my morals and, you know, kind of my better judgment. Like I knew better. I was always I had good intentions and I always wanted to do the right thing, but I, you know, the drugs and alcohol took precedence. So I kind of looked down on myself. So I would beat myself up. And I think that's a common theme. I hear that from a lot of people in recovery. And just to kind of, I guess, get it out of the way is, is for those of, of the people that are listening or watching that they don't know who I am, which is probably a lot. I am uh, in upper management for Oxford House Incorporated. Uh, so I've been around Oxford House for 15 years, been in recovery for 16 years. And I just kind of want to say, as we go through this interview, that, you know, what I speak on is, is coming from me as a person in recovery, um, does not reflect any views or opinions of Oxford House Incorporated. Uh, I'm not representing Oxford House during this interview. I'm happy to talk about it because it's my experience and I'm here to share my experience and share this time with you. Uh, but I am representing myself as an individual male in recovery. Absolutely. Well, how does it feel, you know, leading, being a leader in upper management for a recovery organization like Oxford House? Because it's, it's everywhere and it's clearly a success. I mean, I remember like when I started getting sober, I didn't hear much of it, but it was just that time that it was barely coming in. And it's only been like a little over two years and it's, powerful like it's a big deal so how does it feel being a part of such a life-changing movement i kind of almost feel like an old timer when it comes to oxford house which is weird to say because it's very different when that i when i first came in i first moved into my first house in 2007 i had no idea what i was doing i just i just knew that i wanted to be sober i wanted to be clean and i wanted a safe place to do it and oxford house seemed like pretty safe bet from what I'd heard. And now that I've been doing it for so many years and been able to get into the position that I'm in, it's just one blessing after another. I mean, it's just full of rewards. I never thought that I would have a job like this where I get to be around people in recovery, I get to help people in recovery, um, sometimes, most of the times from behind the scenes. Like I'm not out on the front lines like some of the people are doing some of the real heavy lifting, but I do my, my own part to help people. And there's a lot of people that are probably benefiting from some of the work that I've done, but they don't know who I am. And that's great for me, you know, because my ego doesn't have to get in the way of that. I just know that I used to work before I got hired by Oxford house. When I was living in Oxford house, I would hate that I would have to go to a job and miss out. I wanted to be with the guys at the house or I wanted to, go to the unity event or go to the big conference that was at the next state over, but I had to go to work. So I was real upset about that. So when I got hired by Oxford house, it's like, I don't have to leave for work anymore. This is my job. And I just, I, I can't believe some of the things that I get to do and it's considered on the clock. Like I'm working, like we just got back from a big retreat where we're out in this beautiful campsite and with 150 people in recovery, just celebrating, you know, recovery in Oxford and it was, it was great. And I'm like sitting on the porch of one of the cabins watching the sunset. And it's like this, I'm at work right now. Like I'm clocked in, like what a blessing. I'm, I'm very blessed, very grateful. I hope I never take it for granted. For people that don't know that are listening, how would you describe Oxford House? So everybody's heard the term halfway house, sober living, or even recovery residents. So Oxford House is a recovery home, but it's set up a little different than a typical sober living house or halfway house. Whereas instead of having a house manager, everybody in the home shares responsibility. So everybody gets a voice and a choice in Oxford House. So when they get voted in by the membership, they immediately become part of the family and they get a say and they do a once a week business meeting where they run it kind of like you would see a board, an executive board meeting. So a president, a secretary, a comptroller, and they run the house like a business once a week, check in with each other, make sure the bills get paid, and they run the house. And the rest of the time, it's just a home where they have a common theme of helping each other in recovery. And pretty much you stay sober, you pay your fair share of expenses, 
you do your chores, play nice with others, you can stay there as long as you want. Back in the day, it used to be, you can come into this sober home, we're going to have somebody in charge that tells you what to do, and then in six months, you got to go. Whether you're ready or not, you got to go because new people are coming in. In Oxford House, we'll just open another house. We fill a house, we'll open another one. So that's how we've gotten what, 30, over 3,300 houses that's around the country. That's crazy. And you know what? Before I was introduced to Oxford House, I was not a big fan of, of like, you know, like let's say for me, for instance, right? I left rehab and I went back home. And I would think like, why would I want to live with a bunch of dudes? Like, absolutely not. I need my own thing. Like I was such a diva, right? Um, but it wasn't until like, I, I was honestly like, I didn't go through Oxford House, but I, I've been able to attend various events. I've been able to like be a part of the opening of houses and just see the dynamic that is in, in that group is so needed, especially like in early recovery. Like I relapsed so many times, right? And I think that that was one of the key things that I was mis missing initially was like the fellowship. And I think Oxford House does that so well in the sense that there's like genuine community. Um, it's all around the clock and they teach you things like that adults should kind of basically right. know, right? right? And I like, think that's- <laughs> Like how to do laundry, right? Like, like how to do laundry. When to use hot and cold water in the washing machine. Like I had to learn that in Oxford House. I had to learn how to grocery shop. Yeah. I had to learn how to actually clean a bathroom. Like I thought I knew how to clean, Oh, I was shown how to clean a bathroom living in Oxford House. But more importantly, I learned how to effectively communicate and build relationships with other people. That was something that I didn't see coming. I was always kind of an introvert. Like I said earlier, I was kind of the quiet guy. But in Oxford House, we really need everybody to speak up, especially if you see like one of your brothers that you live with that's struggling or having a hard time. You don't want to ignore that and just assume that they're going to fix it on their own. They may not even see it. There's a saying that I use a lot. Sometimes it's hard to see the whole picture when you're inside the frame. So you need people to, from a different perspective to, to tell you that they see something in you that you might not see in yourself. And I watched people relapse out of the house. And if maybe I had said something, maybe they would have turned a corner and done better. You know, I'm not saying it's my fault that they relapsed and had to leave the house. But if I had shown enough courage and overcome the fear of maybe saying something that might upset them and just out of care and concern being like man i care about you you're spending too much time with your significant other when was the last time you talked to your sponsor when's the last time that you went to a meeting and actually participated in the meeting and not just sat in the back with your text message up? so i learned how to effectively communicate i learned how to listen i learned how to build real relationships because on the streets I had payday friends, right? It was, they were my best friend when I got paid. When I had money in my pocket, they were all there. They were all buddies, wanted to hang out. But when the money's gone, they're gone. In Oxford House, I built real relationships, like people that I will have in my life for the rest of my life. And I didn't really think that that was possible for me because I didn't love myself enough. So I, I knew that nobody else could love me. And in Oxford House, I learned how to love myself through working a program of recovery. And I built that foundation in Oxford House. And there's a meeting, but it's an hour a day. What about the other 23 hours? Oxford House helped fill the gap for that. And it's like, I learned a lot sitting on the porch of treatment. As much as I did in the lectures, on the porch of treatment where everybody's smoking and there's always that one guy that has the guitar. Same. Why is it, why is that's it that so every time you go to treatment, there's one guy with a guitar mm -hmm. that's wrote a recovery song yeah. or writes one in treatment and sings it before they leave. But that's, that's what, that's where I learned the, the first gift that I got in recovery. The very first gift was identification because mm. I was alone. I was isolated in my head. I was isolated in my heart. I was dead inside. Mm. I was a zombie. I thought nobody understands, nobody gets it, and nobody will, and woe is me. You know, I was on the pity pot, and I get into treatment, and it's a bunch of me's. You know, I hear my story out of everybody. It's like, wow, like, 
I didn't realize that there were so many people out there that had the same feelings that I did, that felt the same way. Their stories are different on what they did or how they did it, but what was on the inside, the way they felt, that was me. And that identification, that was a gift. And I carried that into Oxford House. And I carry that with me everywhere. I travel all over the country. And I'll go into 12-step meetings or I'll go into Oxford House meetings. And I'm around a group of people that I can't even remember all of their names. Like I met everybody five minutes ago. And then I've already forgot half their names. But they're my family. That's my tribe. And I can identify with them. So wherever I go, I'm home. And who else can say that? I mean, we have a tribe that's 25 million strong in the country. We're a force. And if we come together and our tribe unites, we can bust the stigma. We can break it down. We can break down the walls that are killing people. And Oxford House, I think, gets us one step closer. I like that you bring that up, the identification part, because I think that's one of the most powerful things that I've seen and experienced myself. Like I was convinced when I was like in my active addiction for years, right, that I was such a piece of shit. No one know what I was going through. I really thought I was going through it myself. And I'll never forget the first call. I, her name is Molly. Shout out to Molly. I called uh, this rehab and this lady, complete stranger, obviously, listened to me for an hour. And I can, and I can just tell that, that she cared. And she was just getting everything out of me, right? She was asking me all these questions. And, and, and in my head, I, was, I thought, oh my gosh, she's gonna think I'm a piece of shit. But what she did was like, no, I've been through that too. I understand. Let's get you help. Like that moment, like felt like, I swear, like, like water was flushing over my body and I felt a sense of relief, even while I was still in active addiction. I'm like, wow, there's, there's people just like me out there. So I like that you carried that into Oxford House. That's Well, you've heard the joke, right? About everybody thinks that they're the, they're the worst, especially like going through their fourth step. Like, yeah. oh, I can't put that one down. There's no way. If I put that down on my fourth step, I'm going to get judged. My sponsor is going to fire me. And then everybody in recovery is going to find out I can't put that down on my fourth step. And so the sponsor talks to the sponsee and is like, you have to do a thorough four-step. Like whatever you leave off of that four-step could be the one thing that comes back to haunt you and slowly eats at you until you have no other choice, no other solution but to go and run from it or numb it with drugs and alcohol. So put everything down. Don't worry about it. Put everything down. The sponsee's like, I don't, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it. And the sponsor's like, this is necessary for your the process of growth and your recovery. You want recovery. Yeah. Okay, well, just tell me what it is. Like, I don't think I can. I'm, it's too embarrassing. Just, just let it out. Don't think about it. Just tell me. I had sex with a goat. And the sponsor looks at the sponsee and says, did yours die too? <laughs> so whatever it is, if it has a name, that means somebody's done it before. So, I mean, in Oxford House, I hear some stories. And I know sometimes we get a little carried away with the war stories. But part of hearing what it was like is, you know, people share their story, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. The what it was like is important so that we can identify with each other. That's a big part of it. Absolutely. And it's crazy that that you're, you're kind of speaking to this, right? Because we we do forget how bad it was sometimes. And right now, for instance, I just seeing you, I see someone who has their stuff together. I see someone respectable who has values. So I guess I want to get a little bit more insight on the per a little bit on how you were like in active addiction. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So early on, like basically from, from conception, my biological father left my mother after she got pregnant and abandoned it gave up his rights and my mom got remarried and he adopted me. So from the start, I had abandonment in my life. I had somebody who could be easily interpreted, didn't love me and didn't want me and basically threw me away. When I was a toddler, my adopted dad and my mom bought a bar and they named it after me. They called it Smiling Jacks. 
So I think I was probably destined mm -hmm. to have uh, alcohol problems because I had a bar named after me when I was a toddler. True. So from there, it's just me trying to um, work twice as hard to get what I thought was half the attention. So I was always trying to be like the class clown. I was trying acting out. I was getting into it with family. By the time I became a teenager, I started getting rebellious. And so by the in high school, it was the parties. Like, where was the party at? I can remember the first time I drank alcohol and that feeling of that just warmth that overcomes you and that just everything's relaxed. Like it was the first time that I felt normal. And I was like, wow, this is it. Like I've arrived. Like all the times where I felt like I didn't fit in or I wasn't cool enough, or I wasn't good enough, or I just doubted myself, alcohol allowed me to feel normal. And so that was it. That was the barometer. So I just kept drinking alcohol on the weekends, and I would feel normal and have fun. So I lived during the week to party for the weekends. That was like the goal. Like, where was the party at? And I became kind of the center of that world. Like, I was getting the fake ID so I could get the beer for everybody. Then I'm the hero, right? Cause I'm a teenager getting the beer or I'm the last one at the party and we're going to finish this keg. Everybody else that left earlier that, you know, thanks for leaving us all the alcohol. I like, I was, I was all about the party, but after high school, when everybody started moving on to college, get married, having kids, I'm like, I'm not ready to stop the party. Like I need this feeling. I need this to continue. And I remember people used to joke and they say, you drink a lot. Like are you, you may be an alcoholic. And I would thank them because as a teenager, I thought that was a compliment. I thought they were telling me that I could drink more and better than they could, which was kind of a rite of passage. Right. And so I took the party to the next level and started hanging out with people that were like me that wanted to party all the time. So that's when I started finding the heavier drugs and it, 19 years old, I found crack cocaine. And within three months, I was homeless. I graduated with honors. And within six months after high school, I was homeless, hopping around motels, eventually sleeping outside. And I ended up calling my grandmother to come pick me up from across the state, from the state over. So I can't do this anymore. She came and picked me up. And I slept and ate and slept and ate. She didn't know what was going on with me. All she knew is I, I just got in with the wrong crowd. She probably had an idea. But it, that cocaine took me down quick. Like alcohol, weed, even, you know, some pills here and there. But it was that crack cocaine that took me down. And it I hit bottom quick. I didn't go to treatment. I didn't go to meetings. I just slept and ate. And eventually grandma helped me get into college. I started college. She helped me with uh, getting a job. I got a job. And so I started getting things back in my life. So I was drinking because alcohol wasn't my problem. Marijuana wasn't my problem. It was the cocaine. So if I just put the cocaine down, everything would be okay. And eventually alcohol and weed led to more cocaine. And it led to me stealing from family, you know, taking checkbooks, taking jewelry, pawning electronics. I mean, it was just, it was bad. I was hurting the people I cared about the most. And everybody else had pretty much written me off. You know, any friends that I thought I had, they didn't want to be around me anymore. And family was trying to love me into wellness. And we know that that doesn't work. Doesn't matter how much you love somebody, they're not going to get well from addiction until they're ready to get well from addiction. So I ended up going to treatment after having a big blow up with my family, I pawned a bunch of stuff and my stepdad wanted to murder me and then call the cops. My mom wanted to send me to treatment, said I needed help. So you have my stepdad over here. I'm gonna beat his ass. I'm gonna call the cops, you're going to jail. And then you have my mom over here. No, he needs help, he needs to go to treatment. I'm with mom, yeah? yeah? <laughs> Like, I'll do whatever. I don't want to go to jail. I'm not the one. I, I don't need to go to jail. So I go to treatment. And I can remember this treatment center. It was so great because I walk in and they're, and they're having a lecture. And they introduce all the new people that come in. 
And so they introduce me and it's like, hi, Jackson. Everybody's smiling. They want to come give me hugs. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Keep coming back. You know, all the cliches. And I'm like, I'm not glad to be here. Why are you smiling? Like, this is miserable for me. Like, my life is falling apart. And you guys are happy that I'm here. And you're smiling and wanting to hug me. Like, don't touch me. I don't want, I don't need anybody, any strangers hugging me. And at the end of the lecture, they all circle up and they say the serenity prayer. I'd never heard the serenity prayer before. And so they're all in unison saying the serenity prayer. And I'm like, I've joined a cult. There's like little cups of Kool-Aid somewhere. Like they're all under some kind of spell. I had no idea what recovery was. No idea. But I learned through treatment what recovery was and started going to meetings. And and I saw people with long-term recovery. And I was like, like, okay, maybe I can do this. But I had it in the back of my mind. It's like, I don't want to work as hard as they're working. I want to, maybe I can do it, but kind of do it my own way. So I'll just go to some meetings. So when I got out of treatment, I just went to some meetings. And didn't really get it sponsored. Didn't do any step work. I just went to meetings. Talked the talk. I learned some of the lingo. And then 11 months, two weeks in, I relapsed. I was like two weeks from one year. But I had been planning that relapse for a while. And it was worse than ever before because when I said alcohol was my solution, like it's what made me feel normal, for a long time, the drugs and alcohol was the solution that was whatever the problem was inside of me, which I couldn't define or I didn't even know what it was. I knew that alcohol and drugs helped take that away, whatever that that weight was that kind of held me down. Now that I've seen recovery work in other people, I know that drugs and alcohol aren't the solution, but yet I'm still doing drugs. So the excuse I had before, where it was what fixed me, what made me whole, I knew was bullshit. And so now, what do I do? Now I'm doing drugs and I know it's not the solution. So they're no fun anymore. The drugs don't work anymore. In fact, it was the anticipation of using drugs that was more enjoyable than the actual using of drugs. And yeah, I mean, after a while, it's like, I'm chasing something that I'm never going to catch, never going to catch it. And that misery just came a hundredfold. It was like a crashing wave. And I eventually went back to the same treatment center and all the counselors that thought I was going to make it, you know, that I walked back in there 18 months later with my head drooped, humble. I was very humble. And I can remember I got a counselor. They gave me the, they gave me the hardest counselor in this place. And she gave me an assignment. They'd give people all kinds of assignments, weird assignments. Like they'd have somebody carry around a duck, like an Aflac duck. And they say, the reason you're carrying around this duck is because you make everything look calm on the outside, but on the inside you're struggling. And it's kind of like the duck on water, like on the top of the water, it's all smooth, but underneath those legs are just going crazy. My assignment was, have you ever seen the game Cranium? So there's a board game cranium and part of it has this inflatable brain helmet that you have to wear. And it has this uh, ring, like a Saturn ring that goes around it that's inflatable. So you wear this big kind of goofy looking inflatable hat. It's a brain. And my counselor said, you have to wear that for a whole week because your ego is so big, you put God to shame. I want you to wear that for a week. Now, most people get to take their assignments, they get to put them down at the end of the day. Or if they go off site to like the store, or whatever, you get like a three hour pass, to go to the store. They get, she's like, no, you need to wear yours while you're awake and up and about. Like, oh I don't want God. you taking it off. So after a week, I walked into her office and it had started to slowly deflate on its own. And so the ring around the little brain had started to droop. And it was falling over my eyes to where I could not really see where I was going. And I walk into her office. I'm sure I look completely ridiculous and miserable. And I look at her. I lift that little flap up from the ring. And I look at her. And she's just smiling. She's like, I think your ego's deflated enough. You can take that thing off. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. 
And from there, it was a turning point for me. The light bulb came on. I had my aha moment, my moment of clarity, a lot of different terminology for that kind of where the, the you flip the switch and you're finally like, okay, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And I left treatment and I haven't looked back since then. I left treatment and I was willing to do whatever it took. And I did everything that was put in front of me that I thought would benefit my recovery. And I haven't stopped since. Been determined to continue to not rest on my laurels, to not get complacent, especially with some years under my belt, because I've seen people that get sober, stay sober for a couple of years, and then get complacent, and then they get miserable again. And I don't want to be a dry drunk. I definitely don't want to relapse, but I don't want to be a dry drunk. I don't, I don't want to have to live a miserable life. I want to be happy, joyous, and free. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to do everything I can to keep the momentum going. So I, I tried to the best of my ability to do that day in and day out. So have you experienced, well, what, what recovery path do you currently work? <laughs> That's a very uh, interesting question. Uh, I've got a long answer for that one. So I think everybody has to find their own path. <laughs> and I'm fully supportive of anybody on any path. As long as they're on a path, just don't don't try to create your own path because that doesn't work. You're going to get in the weeds. You're going to get lost. And don't stop. Just keep going forward and find a path. I think the biggest thing that people need to realize is that if you really pay attention to where you're at and where you want to go, that there's a path in front of you. Keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, and put yourself in the in the right position around the right people. There's a path in front of everybody. And it may not be as clear for some as it is for others. I spent my first five years of recovery very, very diligent AA membership. I went to some NA meetings too, but where I came from, the NA meetings weren't as strong, they weren't heavily as attended, and there weren't they weren't as frequent. So my sponsor was in AA. I ended up going to two meetings a day for the first probably year and a half. I averaged at least a meeting a day. Most of the time I was going to two meetings a day. I had a job where I could take a lunch break in the evening. So I worked uh, second shift and I would go to meetings. So I would go to a noon meeting was my home group. And then in the evenings, I would go to a meeting at my lunch break. I finished the 12 steps in seven months. I was doing step work. While I was uh, working, I was working at the university, checking the servers and doing some print jobs for the IT department. So it was a lot of just me being present. As long as everything was up and running, there really wasn't much for me to do. So I did a lot of reading. I did the, you know, the big book, step work. I was just, I was very diligent about it. Like I said, I put my all into it. After about a year and a half, it slowed down a little bit especially because I started working for Oxford House. So I was moving around a lot. So I lost the home group, but I started going to meetings all over the state of Oklahoma. So I got to meet a lot of people and attend a lot of different meetings. And that was cool. So I, what I lost out on the consistency of a home group and having a sponsor that I saw face-to-face, I got in getting my recovery family bigger just by going to different meetings and gaining in that, in that experience, which was really cool. At about year five, I went through kind of a crisis. I went from having a very religious outlook on life to a kind of 180 to just a spiritual outlook on life. And so I laid down some of the old beliefs that were tied to dogmatic religion. And I looked at more universal spiritual principles that you see in almost all walks of life, in almost all cultures. And so I started following that pathway and really separated the religion from the spiritual and started following the spiritual. And what I found was that, not that AA wasn't working for me, because AA saved my life, but about five years in, I found that AA wasn't giving me enough to feed my hunger and my drive to continue to grow in recovery. I'd been through the steps multiple times. I'd worked with several sponsors. I'd sponsored several people. I'd attended meetings all over the country. I I didn't have the whole book memorized, but I'd been to enough meetings 
in readings of the book and read it on my own enough that I felt knowledgeable in just about most of the general aspects of AA that I felt that I needed something else. I needed to find something in addition to or in replacement of. And so I was kind of on this journey of, of searching. And this was at a time when recovery kind of pivoted in the mid 2000s. It kind of took a pivot and you saw these multiple pathways come out. And so I, I looked at all of them. I looked at smart recovery. I looked at uh, SOS recovery. I looked at celebrate recovery. Uh, I looked at uh, recovery Dharma. I looked at refuge recovery. And I ended up landing on Recovery Dharma. And it's a recovery program that is based on Buddhist principles of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So it's very different from what AA teaches with the 12 steps, but at the same time, it follows a process of change and growth. But as I look in it, as I, as I, as I look and take a step back, I see that recovery in general is all encompassing. So it's not just about going to a self-help meeting and sitting around other people in recovery. That's not recovery for me. And I, and I know a lot of people, they base their recovery off of how many meetings they go to. And meeting attendance, I think, is beneficial because it puts you around other people in recovery. It puts you in the fellowship. And being in the fellowship is important. Because there's another group of people that if I start hanging around, that's who I'm going to start acting like. But what I found was there's more to it than that. I need to pay attention to how is my emotional well-being? How, is my, how am I taking care of myself physically? How am I doing with the environments I put myself in? Like, am I happy with my work? Is my family dynamics? Am I happy in that? Am I doing enough socially to feel like I'm connected with the community as a whole? Or am I in this subculture and kind of lost in this and kind of just boxed myself in with a small group of people that all think the same thing. So I really have to look at the whole. And so I started looking at what is it that I really need in my life? And I need a little bit of everything. So I came up with the idea of Recovery 360. And what Recovery 360 is, is it looks at seven parts of self. So I, I broke down the self into seven parts. And if you think about the number seven, it has a lot of significance in a lot of different cultures. So for the Judeo-Christian belief, you have seven days of creation, the seven deadly sins. You know, seven is a holy number, angelic number. You look at science, you have seven colors in the visible light spectrum. You have seven notes on the musical scale. I mean, sevens are everywhere. You want to play craps? You want to go gambling? The sevens are all over that. So you look at seven and how it is kind of intertwined with all of humanity. Seven parts of self, it makes sense. You got the seven chakras, you know? So this seven is just keeps coming up. And I'm like, okay, so you have your, your obvious ones. You have your physical self. You have your mental self, you have your emotional self, and your spiritual self. But you also have your environmental self. If I was born and raised in the Middle East, I'd be a completely different person because of the environment that I came up in. So your environment plays a very keen role on who you are as an individual. Then you have your social self, who you put yourself around. I mean, think about when we were in our addiction and when I was at home with my family on Thanksgiving, I was one person. When I was in the hood at the trap house smoking crack cocaine, I was a completely different person. So the people I put myself around, my social self, I would change. And then you have your volitional self, which is your willpower, your intuition, your instincts, your gut, your ego, those kind of unwritten, unknown motivators that kind of drive you as an individual. So I look at those seven parts of self and I look at, are all of them healthy? Do I have all seven of them enough 
in check that one of them is not going to drag me down because it's a it's a it's a domino effect if one starts to come down the others do and you hear about a little bit in the 12 step recovery so like hungry angry lonely tired so when you get hungry or you don't get enough sleep your physical well-being will start to affect you mentally and emotionally i mean what happens when we stay up for 3 days our mentals go a little cuckoo right we start seeing the triple we start hearing things start seeing things so if you focus on one that you may be struggling with then you'll start to see it improve on some of the others or vice versa if one starts to to weigh on you like if i'm not eating healthy or i'm doing too much just eating sugary snacks or fast food all the time my body will tell me that it doesn't like that after time and it's going to affect my well-being it's going to affect me in other areas of my life and i'm not saying that going to mcdonald's drive-through is going to lead to a relapse but if i'm not paying attention to all of the parts of self then one of them is going to catch up with me eventually and it's going to cause me to have problems in my life and recovery the process of recovery is to try to get a life like i said be happy joyous and free and so i want to focus on all parts of that seven so i'm really looking at how can i take what's already out there and put it all together so maybe come up with a you know a, a book or some literature to kind of point people in the right direction because you talked about like therapy you know that's the mental side of it if you go and try to talk about a therapist in aa they're going to tell you that's an outside issue you know that's not our primary purpose and I respect AA enough that I'm not going to go in and talk about my diet <laughs> in AA, even though right now for me, that's an important part of my recovery is my diet and what I put into my body, you know, putting healthy stuff into my body. But I'm not going to go sit in an AA meeting and talk about it. Well, where can I talk about it? Who can I talk about it with that I can identify with? There comes that identification. You know, do I go to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting? Because... I never had a problem with overeating. I was just eating crap food all the time. And with the mental side of it, you know, you talk about a therapist that helps a lot of people in their individual recovery. I've never had the need to take any medication for mental health or see a therapist for mental health. But I do know people that do do that and that helps them in their recovery. And I celebrate that. I'm all for that. And that just goes back to the different parts of self and how there's not any one program, I think that does an overall encompassing view on total wellness and well-being. At least I haven't found it yet. So I'm looking at what I can do, what I can put in my life that will help me with all parts of those self. And so that's where I came up with Recovery 360 is I want to incorporate what's out there and just bring it all together, bring all the different things that are floating out there that people are using in their life that work and put them all down as a reference so somebody can look and say, oh, okay, here's, a, here's an opportunity or an option for me that can help me. I'm really, really struggling with my, let's say, social self. You know, I work in an environment, let's say the restaurant industry is a great example. You know, right now I'm in an entry level job in my first year in recovery, but I'm working in a kitchen in a restaurant where everybody's smoking pot in the back while they're, you know, while we're closing the, the store or they're talking about going to the bar after they get off. And I want to be a part of that. I want to have fun with them, but I don't want to destroy my recovery, too. So that's that social self that where do you turn to when that, you know, it's late night. There's no meeting going on at, you know, well. In most areas, there's no meeting going on in the middle of the night when a restaurant closes. So what do you do? What's your social outlet for that? So I, I just I'm trying to think about not replacing any one recovery program. I'm not trying to invent a recovery program. I just want to see what's already out there that's working for people and put it all together so somebody can have it easily accessible. I think the easier we can find what works for people, the more people can find success in their own recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, there's so many recovery paths. And like you said, it, there's not one that's universal. And I, in my experience, I really think that recovery for me has just been layers on top of layers. Like it's not just so black and white. So let's say if someone, I know you're not trying to like necessarily um, take 
uh, fill a space or anything with Recovery 360, but if someone was interested to kind of see more about it, where can they look for that? It's all in my head right now. It's all in your head? Yeah, I don't have any... Well, I, I don't have any links. I, I don't. Because <laughs> I need all of them seven. Yeah, I mean the idea is to is to um, you know put together probably uh, some structure to it and to start doing some research because obviously if I'm going to put together like a resource book or write a book where people can find stuff that helps them, I need to find what is actually working out there. What's what's evidence based or what has enough support that it, it's actually worthwhile to document as a resource because I don't want to lead people down a path that isn't going to help them. So I want to make sure that if I put it down on paper that, that I'm saying that this is helpful, that it actually is helpful. Like I don't think I have enough time in, in my lifetime to go out and fully experience all the different pathways that are out there, which I think would be kind of cool. Like I would like to do that almost like a buffet. Like I would like to jump in the middle of smart recovery for 10 years and really get a grasp for what smart recovery is and then jump in the middle of celebrate recovery and spend a significant amount of time. And I just don't know that there's enough time for me to do that. So I'm going to have to reach out to the people that do have that experience. You know, I want to defer to the people that are smarter than me or have the lived experience in those and get from them what they've gotten out of it and, and put it down because my recovery Yes, I worked very hard for my recovery and I own all the good and bad that, that has happened in my life and my recovery. But my recovery is really a collection of what other people have shared with me through their experience, strength and hope. You know, I did some real heavy lifting with going through the 12 steps and kind of cleaning out all the junk that was inside of me and emptying out that that negative space, that dark place. I really put a flashlight on all of it and I cleaned it out. And then I tried to the best of my ability to replace it with the spiritual principles that recovery teaches me. And then my lived experience is really just, it's a collection of what I see people work. And I see other people, I see it working for them. I'm like, I am willing to try it. You know, if I see it working in somebody else's life, I'm willing to try it. And what's interesting enough is in, in, in with my job in Oxford house, I get to meet so many newcomers, so many people that are in their first few months of recovery. And they're, I just, I celebrate that for, for many reasons. Number one is their fire is so bright, like because they're so close to what the misery and the desperation and the hopelessness, they're so close to that, that their fire for recovery, like they don't want to go back to that. So they're willing to do, you know, I remember having that fire in my first few months and I still have a fire in me, but it's not as bright as those newcomers. And I have to feed off of that. So I'd like being around newcomers. And the second part is, is, there are people wanting recovery, which means addiction isn't getting any better. I don't care how many states legalize marijuana. That doesn't mean it's going to get any better out there or be any easier for anybody. They're still coming into recovery. And so they remind me that the misery can be refunded in full if I choose to go back to it. So that's being around newcomers. That's really, that's where it's at. I mean, I have some old timers. I just had a very good friend just celebrated 40 years in recovery. One of my mentors. And to, to watch him still be involved and still work with new people. It's like, if you want 40 years, there's the blueprint. He's right in the middle of the herd. You know, he's not on the outskirts where the lions can get him. Right in the middle of the herd. And that's where I want to be. I want to stay right in the middle of it. And I've, I've insulated myself pretty well. I've put myself in a good position to be insulated. I mean, that's a really cool uh, perspective, you know, because I remember the first time I went to rehab too. And I, I have a fire for recovery, but it's not the same as it was that very first time that I was introduced to this whole new world. It was the first time I, I met people like me. It was the first time I didn't feel like I was judged. And it was the first time I felt like I had the opportunity to leave that shit behind, right? So it's crazy. And I feel like there's a need to remind the people that are currently listening that maybe an active addiction that it truly is a whole new world, right? You're a complete, you, you have the opportunity to grow and evolve into a whole new person, basically. So I wanna ask you, cause I know you mentioned a mentor, who are your mentors of recovery or in general, who are some people that you look up to? Uh, well, in recovery, um, I have 
my direct supervisor, uh, Kathleen, she's uh, a strong woman in recovery who her leadership is what I look up to, like the way that she leads and the way that she she's very uh, intentional with her decision making. And I've had to learn to slow down a little bit. I get really excited when I see something that I think is going to benefit myself or benefit other people. And so I'll rush into it headstrong without putting some thought into it. And it's come back to bite me a few times where I haven't thought about all of the outcomes or all of the possible consequences that maybe aren't as um, positive as, as maybe I hoped or people don't aren't as excited about whatever it is as me and the way that she can um, stop and, and really make good decisions that benefits everybody. Like she can see angles and she can see outcomes that I never considered. And so I want to have that insight. You know, I want that, that vision that she has. So she's definitely a mentor for me. And James, the one I talked about it celebrated 40 years. He has, He's in his early 80s. He has a memory. He can tell you stories from 20 years ago and remember everybody's name that's in the story. I'll walk into a room in an auction house and meet nine people and I'll leave an hour later and I'll only remember like one. And so I need to do a better job of really cherishing the moments because the cool thing about recovery is I have so many moments, so many treasured moments that I can reflect on, but I don't realize how impactful they are for me and for the people around me until they've passed. So I want to do better remembering the moments that I'm in, being present in the now and enjoying the now instead of fearful of what's to come or regretful of what just took place. And he does that better than anybody I know. He enjoys the moment. Mm. And that's where recovery at is at. It's it's now. It's right here, right now. It's all we got. And it's not next Tuesday. It's right now. And I get lost in that. I start getting ahead of myself or or thinking about how I could have done this or done that, analyzing my decision making. And if I just stuck to it and just lived right now, I really got nothing to complain about. Life is good. I mean, look what, look what we're doing right now. Right. We're enjoying each other's company. We're getting to know each other on a more intimate level. And maybe somebody else out there is hearing a message that might connect with them. So this is, this is the greatest thing ever right now. So I'm going to enjoy this moment. That's very true, man. That's, that's awesome. And that's one thing I personally struggle with is uh, just being in the moment sometimes. It's been one of the biggest challenges for me, um, but I have been able to kind of like experience it and it becomes effortless over time. And it is a pretty cool feeling once you just kind of like, like, yo, I'm really, I'm good right now. You know, like you start observing little things and every, every second is, is pretty awesome in recovery. So how do you how do you put into practice uh, being in the moment, I guess? What's best for me is I've learned to, and I'm not good at it still, but I'm learning to meditate, like not just be silent, but to actually meditate and just, I'll do exercises with guided meditations where somebody will have, give me instructions on breathing, focusing on the breath and just relaxing and maybe centering on relaxing the toes and then relaxing the foot and then relaxing the cat, you know, and, and work my to where I'm a whole body relaxation. And within probably 90 seconds, my mind's wondering, I'm thinking about, all right, what am I going to eat healthy for lunch? Let's see. <laughs> I, I don't, I just ran out of lunch meat, so I can't have a sandwich. So I got to go to the store. Do I have time to go to the store? I got a Zoom meeting at one. If I go to the store and then I'm like, wait, I'm meditating. What am I, what am I doing? So I'll have to come back to the breath and I'll have to focus on the breath. So I've been trying to do the 15, 20 minute meditations. And if you try to sit still and just focus on your breath and be present without thoughts, 
Because anytime you think, you're out of the present moment. When you start thinking, you're no longer in the present moment. You've just broken that seal. You're now somewhere else. So if you can quiet your thoughts and just breathe and just be for 20 minutes, it's very powerful. And it's a very spiritual experience. I've yet to do a full 20 minutes without my mind wandering. But I don't beat myself up about it. I just slowly bring myself back to the breath. And I just start focusing on that and just breathing and being. And I've been trying to do a meditation once a day, at least a five minute. I don't always do a 20 minute, but at least a five minute, just I'm going to center myself. I'm going to stop. I'm not going to think about what's to come. I'm not going to think about my agenda, my to-do list. I'm not going to think about what's wrong, all my problems, things I'm concerned about or worried about. I'm just going to focus on the here and now. And so meditation has been the best tool that I've learned recently in my recovery through Recovery Dharma on how to stay in the present moment. It's really been a game changer. That's crazy. Yeah, like, I mean, I imagine you're a crazy busy person. I mean, I feel like I assume you have a lot of people trying to reach out to you and you're literally, I think last time I saw you, where were we at? Well, we're in Flagstaff, but where do you live? I live in Central Texas. So you live in Texas, and I just feel like you're constantly all around, right? Constantly busy. So, I mean, I think practicing meditation can be a a good skill. And um, recently you learned it. So what else in recovery have you learned that has helped you in general? Early on through AA, I learned that the side of of life that really I was missing growing up was the side of service to helping other people. Um, I was always so self-absorbed and most of it was negative talk, but it was still about self. So it wasn't that I thought I was better than everybody else. I thought I was worse than everybody else, but I was still thinking about myself all the time and how I looked to other people. How could I gain your attention? How could I gain your approval? How could I be accepted by you? So I was going to try to act in a way that I thought that you would approve of so that I could be accepted and liked by you. So I went around with a mask on. I was like a chameleon. I was trying to be everything to everybody. And it was exhausting. When I got into recovery and I was given permission to just be myself, that scared me because I didn't know who I was. I was terrified of who I really was without any judgment. Like, if you think about it, like, who are you as a person, your beliefs, your likes, your dislikes? Who are you if nobody judged you or had an opinion on it? Who are you really? And I had to stop and think about that. I had to learn who I was. And once I got to know myself, then I can start to help other people. Because once you get self-love, all you want to do is share that. Like once you get that serenity in your life, that peace and serenity that comes in brief moments, they get a little bit longer as you get in recovery, stay in recovery, but you want to share that with other people. You want them to experience that. Like I wish I could go around like the fairy godmother in Cinderella and just boop everybody with, here's some serenity for you and some peace for you and some serenity for you. <laughs> I can't. Everybody has to go through a process and experience that themselves. But I can serve them in a way that helps them and it takes away anything that I have going on in my life. So all the problems that I have, and everybody has problems. In early recovery, I had some pretty big problems, some legal problems, a lot of financial problems, definitely some family relational problems. Now I still have problems. They're not as severe, but I still have problems. I think everybody, that's just life. Everybody's got problems. But when I'm serving somebody else, my problems melt away. I can help somebody else and I get helped in the process. And so the recovery that that I like to subscribe to today is how can I be of maximum service to the people around me? How can I serve them? And I just happen to get a paycheck as part of it which is a bonus for me. I would still be doing what I do, not specifically the work that I do for Oxford House, but I would still be doing for people in recovery 
whether I was getting paid for or not, because I know the benefit for them and I know the benefit for me. So service work, it's, it's the key to it all. And people hear the word work and it automatically turns them off, but it doesn't feel like work. I haven't felt like I've worked in a long time. I've seen people that go to the nine to five. Yeah, <laughs> that work where they're ready to clock out, right? Yeah. And, and actually have their time mm -hmm. to be them. I don't ever feel like I have to stop what I'm doing to be myself. Like I get to go out and do what I do. And I just kind of feel like if I'm clocked in or clocked out, it's like I continue to do what I'm going to do. I don't really feel like I'm working half the time anyway. And I get to serve others. That's definitely a gift when, when you're working and you're doing what you love. And at the same time, you're helping other people and, and making a change. And I think for me, recovery has been just like, I like that you talked about like kind of like learning who you are, who are you really, right? Like once you take off those hats of being like a son, a partner, an employee, like who really are you? And I think that's been one of the coolest experiences for me getting sober has been really getting to know all these different layers about me and all these, like what I like, what I don't like, like it's so interesting. And, and that's why like, like you, I, I sometimes wanna just spread that message to the people that are currently struggling. Cause I know sometimes for those people, it seems like it's impossible to like, just get sober, um, but it's definitely worth it. So I know we're running out of time. So I wanna ask you, the cheesy question, but super thoughtful question that I always ask everybody. For those people that are currently listening right now that are in the grips of addiction, what kind of words do you have for them? There's hope. Never give up hope. There's always hope. And there's somebody out there that wants to help you. No matter what you think about yourself, no matter what you've done, your do is not your who. The things that you've done in your life that keep you chained up in that self-imposed prison of addiction, that is not who you are. That does not define you. You were born with worth. You'll never lose it. You're worthy. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to be whole. You deserve recovery. You deserve a life that you can't even dream possible. My first week in recovery, in treatment, my counselor had me write down what I wanted in one year if I stayed clean and sober. And I sold myself short. I looked at that a year later and I got way more than what I thought I deserved at one year. It's hard to get sober. It's very, very hard to get sober. But if you just reach out your hand, there is somebody that will take it. There's 25 million of us. And most of us want nothing more than to bring you into the tribe of recovery and wrap our arms around you and make you feel like you just joined a ridiculous cult. We got the cup of Kool-Aid for you. Just come on. We got a chair for you. We got love for you. You're worthy of it. Come join us in recovery and watch all of your dreams come to true. I have a beautiful wife, a love of another human being that's gonna be for the next, hopefully 65 years. So I'm like, you know, over a hundred years old that we can be together. I got a degree, a bachelor's degree from a major university for business administration. I own my own home. I bought a home. Like I never thought any of that was possible. I used to sleep with concrete as a pillow, smoking crack cocaine, wearing clothes that I hadn't changed in two weeks, thinking my life was miserable and I was a waste of space. And here I am today. And I'm not special. I just decided to make a change. I held on to a little bit of hope. And there was somebody there to walk me down the path of recovery. And now here I am offering that to you. So just hold your hand out and never give up hope. We're here to help. Beautifully said. And super inspiring. And he's right. There's a whole army out here. 
waiting for you. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yes, give me a hug, man. man. I was a little scared. I was a little nervous, but I it, it's honestly super cool that you got to sit down here and I got hey, to pick I, out your brain. Now I gotta say this before we close. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Really? For a long time. I've been hinting, okay, when's my interview? When's my interview? And I keep seeing these other interviews come up. So I'm glad that I finally got my spot. I had to wait in line <laughs> to get my spot on the podcast. All right. I'm going to be sober now. So okay. now I'm, I'm, my life is complete. All right, y'all. Well, it's till next time for, for the last time. We're sober now, baby. We don't do no more drugs and no more alcohol. I know that's right. Tired of wearing these grippy socks. Cut the drawstring out my pants.